Well, it is good to be here this Sunday. We are uh, the third part of a series called Make and Multiply, talking about our mission as a church. And our mission is to make disciples. And so here we are, third message, and we are going to get right to it. I want to start this message by defining our terms. You've got to understand what it means to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. That is the mission that Christ has given us in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. In order to understand how to make disciples, we first need to define what is a disciple. What is in the New Testament is mathetes, the Greek word. And it could be translated simply pupil or learner. You might think of a student, a pupil or a learner. But in ancient Greece, you have to understand that learning or or to be a student was much different than it is today. Let's just say that there was no Zoom school in ancient Greece. There was no showing up to class, taking notes, hearing a lecture, and then going home. That's not what it meant to be a learner or a student in ancient Greece. Actually, a mathetes, a disciple or a pupil, was someone that, in their words, they would say is bound to their master. They were bound to their master, their teacher. And it often resulted in students living together with their teacher. Life-on-life type of teaching. This is what it meant to be a disciple, a life-on-life learner. And so I think more helpful for us to understand what a disciple really is, is to call him a follower. A follower. And that implies obviously way more than just learner or pupil in our context. A follower is someone who follows another. It is more than learning. It is applying and following. It's a direction of life. What is Jesus' number one command for his disciples in the scripture? What's the number one command from the Lord for his disciples? I heard it. Follow me. Follow me. That's what a disciple does. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus. So then what is it to make disciples? Or what is discipleship? What does this process look like? I appreciate the simplicity of uh, Mark Dever's definition in the book that a lot of you have read, Discipling. Have you read this little blue book? Mark Dever talks about discipleship in the Christian life. And this is how he defines discipleship. I appreciate this definition. It is simply this. Helping others follow Jesus. If a disciple follows Jesus, then discipleship is helping others to do the same. That's what it is simply. Now, there's two important components of discipleship. And again, this is just foundational before we get to our principles today. Two important components. You have evangelism and equipping. In order to help someone follow Jesus, they have to come to know him. They have to surrender to him, have faith in him as Lord and Savior. 
So evangelism is helping people come to know Jesus. Equipping happens after they've been converted, and that is helping people to grow and become more like Jesus. Now notice, notice with these components on the screen, what is or who is the aim of both components? Jesus. Jesus is the end of discipleship. He's the goal. He's the finish line. He is our aim. Now, uh, I've been teaching my kids how to ride a bike. And this is a new endeavor. We're still learning, okay? They're still disciples, mathetes. Um, And they're very early. They have the training wheels on. And, you know, Joelle's doing pretty good. She can ride it straight. But my son is all over the place. He looks like a clown on that bike. Here's what I have to do in order to get my son going in the right direction. I have to physically move him and turn him and aim him down the bike path. And then, of course, he's not very good at steering yet, so he'll steer off course, right, left, wherever it goes. And I have to walk with him along the way and kind of just nudge him or turn him back on target to go down the path straight. Listen, friends, that is discipleship. A simple illustration of discipleship. It is, in other words, aiming people toward Jesus as they follow him. So discipleship starts by getting them started, pointing them to Jesus Christ. And when they become true followers of Jesus Christ, a good discipler will still continue to nudge them and point them in the right direction along the way. It's walking alongside someone as they aim toward Christ. Let's look at a couple of key passages here. The aim is Jesus. Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim. There it is. Jesus Christ. We proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's the goal. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then this is our aim. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of Of the fullness of who? Christ. The Christian life is Christotelic. You know what that means? The Christian life is pointed to Christ. He's our aim. He's our goal. And so our whole life is lived in pursuit of Jesus. That's essentially what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So ask yourself today, I don't want to just blow by this without asking the question, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is your life aimed at the Savior? You know, you may call yourself religious. You may consider yourself a Christian. You may wear a Christian name tag. But are you truly following Jesus? Are you truly en route toward Him, growing to become more like Him, following Him, imitating Him. 
Is your life Christotelic? Is it pointing to Jesus? And then the question that all of us are going to walk through today is, how can we help others do that? How can we help other people follow Jesus? Christ is our aim. By the way, Jesus is the aim of Christian parenting as well. This should be your goal for your children. To present them mature in Christ. That they would know Jesus and follow him. Your aim for your children or the goal of parenting is not that they would get straight A's. It's not that they would have lots of friends. It's not that they'd be ready to move out of the house when they're 18. And Lord willing, unlike Tim and me, have to move back in. Your dream, your goal, your aim for your children is not that they would fulfill all your hopes and dreams. Go to the college that you want them to go to. Marry a millionaire, become a millionaire, and give you grandkids. No, no, no. That's not the aim of parenting. Your aim, parent, Christian parent, is that your children would know Jesus Christ and that they would follow him with their life. That is our aim. He is who we proclaim. And our desire is that we would present every man, every woman, mature in Jesus Christ. Create, make true disciples of Jesus. So with that aim in mind, with that aim in mind, discipleship can really take on many forms. And it comes in different sizes. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. You know, typically when people think of discipleship, they might think of the meeting at Starbucks over a cup of coffee. Or, you know, in, in recent times, a meeting over Zoom <laughs> with your own cup of coffee. Um, they think of discipleship being mostly one-on-one -on -one interaction. No, if the aim is really to help people follow Jesus, discipleship can take many forms and happen in many different contexts. It can be in a small group. It could be in a large group. It can happen at a park. It can happen in the home, in a classroom. It should be a, uh, the center of your parenting, the friendships that you have. In fact, discipleship can happen at a church service. You're being discipled right now. You're being exhorted by me, the preacher, and in God's word to become more like Jesus and make disciples. So, if discipleship can take on many forms, different sizes, what are the essentials of good discipleship? What are some essentials of good discipleship? How can we be effective in helping others follow Jesus? Some would say you need good chips and good guacamole. Or you need a good cup of coffee to talk over. Now let's talk about the real tangibles, the practicals that we could cling on to. And these, by the way, come out of the scriptures. I'm going to have us turning to multiple texts in the Bible to learn from Jesus and the Apostle Paul to learn from them how to disciple what are the essentials of discipleship drawn from the scriptures and applied to our context? Okay, here it is. Number one, the first essential of good discipleship is relationship. Relationship. In order to have effective discipleship, 
you must have not shallow relationships, but deep relationship. Deep relationship. This is obviously countercultural, especially in our day and age. We live in a world of superficial relationships, don't we? Relationships are formed and maintained through a screen. I mean, think about your conversations, your daily conversations. I would be willing to bet that most of you in this room spend more words via text message, direct message, or email than an actual in-person conversation. You know, the irony of social media, this platform designed to make new connections and maintain old ones, is that it actually makes us more antisocial and distances us from good, deep relationship. Antisocial behavior, shallow relationship has even multiplied exponentially in the past year, hasn't it? Coronavirus didn't just affect people's health. And it did affect people's health. It affected also their relationships and the closeness that they have with people. More than ever, more than any other time in this world, we are people that are distant from each other, not just physically, but relationally. The Lord Jesus Christ was not relationally distant from his disciples. In fact, the Lord lived with his disciples, didn't he? That is, the Lord Jesus Christ knew the disciples' daily habits. He knew their routines. In fact, he knew which disciple had bad bedhead when he woke up in the morning. The disciple that had bad breath. The snorers and the non-snorers. Because again, these men slept with each other. The Lord was closer and had a deeper relationship with three of the disciples. We know that, Peter, James, and John. But he modeled close True mathetes relationship with his disciples. And so did the Apostle Paul. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul modeled this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, modeled true discipleship and good relationship. This life-on-life aspect of discipleship. 2 Timothy 3.10 By the way, this is Paul's last letter, Paul's final words. Paul is in prison and headed for execution. He knows that these are his last days. And he writes this touching and informative letter to his, one of his greatest disciples, Timothy. Timothy, his son in the faith. And he says this in verse 10, he says, You, however, Timothy as opposed to the godless men that he talks about before in chapter 3. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching and my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch. In other words, Paul says, Timothy, you've seen everything. You've followed me in everything because you've seen everything. You've been with me when I had to endure persecution. You've been with me in hearing my teachings. You've been with me as I walk throughout my days, my conduct. There's not a part of my life, Timothy, that I've not withheld from you. 
This is a great model for deep relationship and discipleship. This has to entail more than a a once-a-week get-together. This should entail a little bit more than maybe just the once-a-week gathering on Sunday mornings or afternoons, in our case. This is life-on-life relationship that he's modeling. Why don't you turn over to uh, the left and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul modeled this to the Thessalonians as well. Paul had such a deep affection for the churches that he ministered to. You know, the books of the Bible, these epistles are letters written to actual churches. And in Paul's case, churches that he ministered to and ministered with. Look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and look at verses 7 to 8. And Paul is talking about the time that he was with the Thessalonians. He says in verse 7, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. What an image. You know, the nurturing, maternal care of a mother for her child. That's how Paul compares his ministry to the Thessalonians. This is how I cared for you. So, verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, strong words, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Wow, that's strong language coming from the Apostle Paul, a man who did not just give them the gospel, but he says, I gave you my very life. I spent my life with you, living amongst you, developing deep, affectionate, maternal even relationship with you, fostering this relationship. So this is an essential part of good discipleship, deep relationship. We see it modeled by the Lord and we see it modeled by the Apostle Paul. You might ask, Morgan, especially, you know, I have a busy schedule I have a demanding job, a demanding family. I've got a lot going on. What, what is good relationship going to cost me? What is this kind of discipleship going to cost me? Well, I want to give you three. Three costs for good relationship. Number one is time. Deep relationship will cost you your most valuable resource, which is not your money. It's not your 401k, it's not your investments, it's your time. It will cost you time. Time spent with people. Time given to people. Time sacrificed. It'll take time from one area of your life and you'll have to take it and invest it into other people. In order for deep relationship to form, good discipleship to happen, it will take time. And by the way, it will require patience in association with that time. It's going to require patience in order for deep relationships to build. Not just one meeting at the park or at the coffee shop. Not just one interaction on a Sunday, but multiple. Maybe dozens in order to build good relationship. Time. Time. Where do you spend your time? 
Where do you spend your time? Weekly. I'd encourage you, I mean, you may be very familiar with your schedule. You all, at least you're familiar with the part that you have to go to work on. You know, <laughs> I know my work hours. But how do you spend the remaining hours of your time? Is it invested into the Great Commission? Is it invested into your family, the discipleship in your home? Is it invested with the relationships in this church, this local body? Are you willing to spend yourself like the Apostle Paul did for others? Time. Time is a worthwhile investment. The second thing that deep relationships will cost you is vulnerability. Vulnerability. It will cost you vulnerability. In order for deep relationships to form, you need to let people in. You need to let people see the good, the bad, and the ugly in your life. You need to allow people to know your struggles, your hurts, your fears. You need to open yourself up. You need to be able to trust one another. And trust develops what? Over time and opens, or or trust develops when both are willing to open up to one another. I want you to see something in James chapter 5. Why don't you turn in your scriptures to James chapter 5. Um, this is a very, uh, well, well this, let's just say this is skipped over in a lot of <laughs> sermons. This, this verse here. And I want you to see that this is a command in the scriptures. James chapter 5 verse 16. It says, therefore, James 5, 16. I'll give you a couple more seconds to turn there. I want you to see it in the text. But James 5, 16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Wow. You want to talk about being vulnerable? Allow someone into the darkness of your heart to show them the monster? Your sin? Isn't that what we're commanded to do here? Confess your sins to one another. Not so that they would judge you. Not so that they would point the finger and say, Aha, I am better than you. You're slimy. You're filthy. You know, sinner. No, that's not why we confess our sins to one another. Here's the follow-up. And what? Pray for one another. Pray for one another. That you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Be vulnerable. And you might say, you might throw up the hand and say, Morgan, I've done that before. And it came back and bit me. I trusted someone with something. And this person betrayed my trust. How could I ever trust anyone again? I'm sorry that that happened to you. I truly am. I I sympathize. That's happened to me. But let me just tell you, just because someone broke your trust in the past doesn't mean that you don't offer trust in the future, that you don't open yourself up to others. In fact, ultimately, ultimately, doesn't that express ultimately our ultimate trust in God? When we open ourselves up to others, who are we ultimately trusting? The God who's sovereign over all things, who in his providence exercises control over all things. So if that person betrays your trust, oh, I, 
I'm sorry, that hurts. I know it does. But isn't God in control of that? Can't God, doesn't God say, I will, uh, I will work all things together for your good? When we trust others, we are ultimately expressing our trust in the Lord. That's not to say that you just throw out, you know, trust, trust bucks freely, uh, trust money. But it is that you would develop trust and have an environment of people that you're willing to be open and honest with and people that you can confess your sins to. And then the third thing that deep relationship will cost you is love. Love. Christian love. Not affectionate, feel-good love, but sacrificial love. Why don't you turn in the Scriptures to 1 John. Let's look at what God's love is. 1 John chapter 4. Here is love, verse John 4, 10, and 11. This is the kind of love that deep relationship will cost you. Verse John 4, 10, 11, it says this, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Sacrificial love. Now, what's the next verse say? Beloved, if God so loved us, what? we also ought to love one another. In order to have deep relationship, it will require from you love, selfless love, to put others before yourself, to be willing to sacrifice time, even to be vulnerable, to show humility for the sake of others. Jesus said in John 13, what did he say to his disciples? Just as I have loved you, just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. So relationship, relationship is the first essential in good discipleship. And it will cost us time, vulnerability, and love. Worthwhile costs to help others follow Jesus. The second essential to good discipleship is Bible. Bible. And these are not in any particular order. I don't mean to prioritize these, but these are just some essentials that... I've come up with out of the Scripture, looking at the example of the Apostle Paul and Christ, but Bible is an essential of good discipleship. What do we have? What do we have to say to anyone that is profitable, helpful, encouraging, correcting, admonishing, if it's not the Word of God? Answer is nothing. We have nothing outside of the authoritative, trustworthy, sufficient Word of God. Why don't you turn in your Scriptures to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I told you I'd have you turning around a lot today. I know it's up on the screen, but it would be helpful for you to see this in the, in the, on the pages of your Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture. Is that some Scripture? No. Is that most of the Scripture? No. All of it. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is God-breathed. In other words, these words here are His words. And if it is from the mouth of God, and we know, according to Numbers 23 and throughout the whole Scripture, that God cannot lie we know by, according to John 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. 
Therefore, if all Scripture is breathed out by God, we know that this is the truth. This is trustworthy. This is inerrant. This is authoritative. But also, look at the rest of this verse. 3.16. And profitable. Profitable for what? For teaching. For reproof. For correction. For training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. God's Word is inerrant and God's Word is sufficient. Sufficient in every need, with every trial, in every circumstance. We have God's Word that can light our path and guide our way. We have the truth that we can depend upon. And so this truth must be at the center of good discipleship. Discipleship without the Word of God is ineffective. Um, I, I, uh, in, in, in student ministries, I had a group of young men that were really zealous about purity. They were trying to fight the battle of lust that a lot of young men fight. And so they held this accountability group. And these men got together, and you know, young men, teenagers, and God bless them, they had good intentions. But they got in this group, and uh, they would meet regularly to keep each other accountable. And they invited me to the group one day. And I was excited to come and be able to help them along in this journey. And, and I asked them, I said, so what do you do in your time together in this accountability group? And they said, well, essentially we go around in a circle and we just, you know, admit, you know, did we fail or did we do good this week? If we did good, okay, praise the Lord. Good job. And if we failed, well, okay, brother, I'll be praying for you. And they did that for every man, and they just went around the circle, and at the end they prayed. And I said, guys, what does Psalm 119.9 say? What does Psalm 119.9 say? I'll tell you what it says. How can a young man keep his way pure? How? By keeping it according to your word. Guys, there's no Bible. <laughs> I, I told them, I said, men, you have no Bible. You guys should be memorizing the Scripture together. You should be reading the Word together. You should be teaching each other the Word, memorizing it, meditating on it, regurgitating on it, so that you could win the battle against lust and so that you can be pure. Our discipleship needs to be centered on the Word of God. Make sure that it is centered, central in your discipleship relationships. A couple of ways to do that. Like I said, read the Bible together. Memorize the Scriptures together. Discuss the Bible together. I've been encouraged uh, hearing about how growth groups are going with the material. What is the mission of the church? And a, a lot of you are in chapter 6 coming up. And I love chapter 6 of that book, What is the Mission of the Church? Because what it does it is it essentially gets you to look at Bible and interpret the Bible correctly. It, it gives you actual passages to work through. That's such a good exercise. Good principles in how to study the Bible. If you don't know how to study the Bible, ask someone who does and learn. Ask them, can I be your mathetes? Can I be discipled by you and learn how to study the Scriptures? Because this is essential, even central in good discipleship. Number three, prayer. The third essential of good discipleship is prayer. Prayer 
is the often neglected sibling of Bible reading. You know, the pastor says there's two sermons that convicts a Christian every time they're preached. Two sermons. What are their topics? Evangelism and prayer. Oh, we know as believers, we don't pray the way we ought to pray. We don't pray enough, do we? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Romans 12.12 says, be constant in prayer. The two should go hand in hand, scripture reading and prayer. Bible is hearing from the Lord, Him speaking to us. Prayer is what? Us speaking to God. Both are essential. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Let's look at the Lord model this in His discipleship. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Look at the text. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples. And then you know the rest. The Lord then gives him the Lord's prayer. But I just want to look at this verse and and note some observations here. Notice that they asked him this question after they saw him praying. Jesus Christ modeled prayer. And think about that. God, the creator of the universe, one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit, he prayed. He was dependent upon prayer, wasn't he? We see him time and time again. In fact, in the book of Mark, it shows us he woke up before it was light outside to pray. And that was his routine. That was his habit. The Lord Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. He prayed in such a way that the disciples marveled that they would ask him the question, Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples didn't ask him, Lord, teach us how to uh, cast out demons. Or, Lord, teach us how to preach the way that you preach. We want to learn how to preach. No, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because there's something special about the way that you pray. And look at what they say. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, as he taught his mathetes. Listen, this was a popular discipleship topic. John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray, and, well, of course, Jesus then would teach his disciples. In fact, if you're looking for a topic to go through in discipleship, why not choose the topic of prayer? If you were to list out, you know, the most important topics to be discipled in, to learn in, to become a student in, prayer is pretty close to the top of that list. Oh, that we would learn how to pray, that we would help others learn how to pray, and that we would pray for others as we engage in discipleship relationship. Unfortunately, prayer is often the thing that gets placed on the back burner of a conversation. Oh, we'll get to that at the end if we have time. You know, in the gathering, the group, prayer should be a priority. It's one of the most powerful and effective ways to disciple someone. And one of the most powerful and effective ways to disciple others, which is, remember, help them follow Jesus, is to pray for them. 
to pray for them in that endeavor. I mean, isn't that what Paul did in Ephesians 3 we looked at a couple weeks ago? Do not underestimate, undervalue, or underprioritize prayer and discipleship. So how can you reinvigorate prayer and discipleship? I have three ways here. Simply put, make it a priority. Prayer needs to be a priority in discipleship. Secondly, write prayers down. That has been so helpful to me. I keep a prayer journal and I write them down. And the third thing is to follow up. When you pray for someone or when you say you're going to pray for someone, make sure that you actually pray for them, one. And two, follow up. Hey, you shared with me that you're having those troubles at work. I've been praying for you. How's that going? Well, hey, you shared with me that, man, it's been really difficult at home lately with your children. How's that been going? I've been praying for you. Oh, let's make prayer great again in our discipleship because it's essential. The last essential of good discipleship, and I'll hurry through this one. It's important, though. Accountability. Accountability is essential in discipleship. What's the number one reason that so many well-intentioned discipleship relationship groups fail? There's no accountability. There's no structure. No clear intention or expectations. I want you to think of accountability like the glue that keeps you on the track. In other words, in the illustration of guiding my son as he's riding down the bike path, accountability is me coming alongside him when he's veering off the track and pushing him back on. It's the constant follow-up, walking with someone as they follow Christ. That's what accountability is. Coming alongside is a good way to put it. And there's so many reasons that discipleship relationships can just derail. They can go off track, shoot in all kinds of different directions. But good accountability keeps them on target. Toward the aim, which is Jesus Christ. So here are some essential elements of good accountability. Number one, you have a clear goal. Set a clear goal. Define the relationship is maybe another way to put it. What are we getting together to accomplish? Now, whether that's in a small group, a book study, or maybe just a one-on-one discipleship meeting, set the goal. What are we here to do? What do you want to grow in? How do you want to become more like Christ? How can we both sharpen each other to become more like Jesus? Maybe for some of you wives, you know, you want to meet with an older godly woman and just say, you know, I just want to spend time with you to learn how to be a godly wife. There, that's a clear goal. That's great. Maybe some of you mothers go, you know, new mothers, you say, you know, I want to spend time with so-and-so because I want to learn how to be a godly mother. Maybe some of you men, I don't know, you're interested in theology, you want to be sharpened on a certain topic, then you go up to a guy and you say, hey, listen, I want to, I want to study this topic because I want to know God more through His Word. Would you study this with me? There you go. You have a clear goal. So many times... People get together, and maybe it's good fellowship, it's encouraging, but there's no clear goal. There's no intention to the relationship. And good discipleship has a clear goal in mind. The second component of that is a clear structure, a backbone, if you will. And it could be very informal. 
like, you know, the mother or the wife who wants to simply spend time with another mother or wife to be encouraged in mothering or wifing, or uh, maybe a husband who needs to be encouraged in husbanding uh, or, or so on. You know, it could be an informal structure. Maybe you set up a monthly uh, meeting time where you go to their house or they come to yours, but it could also be very formal. And in the case of studying theology or going after a certain topic in the Word, I would encourage you to set a schedule and stick to it. Determine a time that works for you and the other individual or you and the group and stick to the calendar. If it's not in the calendar, my motto is it doesn't happen. That's just helpful for me. Clear structure in discipleship relationships. This part of that structure is the curriculum. At times you have chapters that you go through and you know, it's easy to break it up week by week. Other times it could just be simply a schedule or a couple of dates on the calendar. I encourage you to add some structure in discipleship relationships. And the third element of good accountability is follow-up. Oh, this is so crucial. Just to follow up with the individual. How is it going? How is it going? Maybe you could initiate the follow-up with the others and say, Hey, I have an update for you. It's not going well. Or... Or, hey, I, I just want to encourage you, I've been so blessed by our interactions together, and I'm growing to become more like Christ. I mean, consider what the epistles are. The epistles, these letters written to churches. What are they if they're not just good follow-up? From who? The Apostle Paul or Peter. That's what they are. The Apostle Paul spends time with these churches, and then he sends them a letter to follow up. <laughs> To encourage them in things that they're doing well, and then also to give some correction, some admonition. And of course, Paul also had his regular visiting follow-ups as well, just modeling for us what good accountability looks like. Accountability is essential for good discipleship to stay on track. Well, that was a lot of scripture and a brush overview, but I thought it could be helpful for you as you think about helping others follow Jesus, discipleship. The aim is that we would know Christ and grow to become more like him. He's always our aim, Jesus Christ. And again, I I just want to ask you if you're truly following Jesus. If not, if you know, you know what, the aim of my life is not Christ. In fact, the aim of my life is myself. I am my own master. I do what I want. Or, hey, I'm really pursuing pleasure. Or I'm really pursuing success. Or I'm really pursuing the comforts of life. Or really pursuing the things of this world. I would just encourage you to repent, to turn from your sins and follow a better master. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to heaven but through Christ. Turn from your sins and believe in Jesus. Jesus offered a way of salvation by living the perfect life that you couldn't live. Dying on the cross, taking your punishment, your guilt, your shame, dying in your place, and then rising from the dead to prove victorious over sin and death. If you believe in Jesus, you will be dead to sin and alive to God. You will truly follow Him. I encourage you to do that today if you're not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. For those of us who are, I encourage you to engage in discipleship, to apply these principles in your life-on-life interactions with each other. And I want to give you a really 
a simple way to do that. I want to talk a little bit about this, this curriculum here, salvation and the Christian life. You might know it formerly as the discipleship lessons uh, that Thomas uh, engaged in writing alongside Jeremy. This is fantastic content. Fantastic content. You know what this does? This provides a structure for discipleship. This provides a ton of Bible. has a ton of Bible in it. This walks through the essentials of the Christian life. Let's go through the chapters. Number one, gospel, the foundation of our faith. Number two, assurance of salvation. Number three, sanctification. That is the process of becoming more like Jesus. Chapter four, Bible, how to study the Bible. What is the Bible? How does it benefit us? Chapter five, prayer. Chapter six, church. Some of the topics that I talked about today, it's all in this booklet. What we want to do is just encourage you to go through this material if you haven't already, or want to encourage you to use it and take someone else through it with you. What a simple way to apply this message, to engage in discipleship, to go up to a coworker who doesn't need to know Christ and say, hey, I have this discipleship lessons here. Uh, would you go through this with me? Maybe they would do it. It's a form of evangelism. Maybe you know a, a, a young believer, a new believer in the faith, and they don't know the essentials. They're, they're not really strong on the foundations of the Christian faith. Go through this curriculum with them. This will provide that, fa- that foundation. Maybe you have children who are old enough to go through a simple workbook. This would be a great way to disciple your kids. They could go through this workbook. It's simply worded, simple enough. And it would instruct them in the foundations of the faith. There are so many applications of this curriculum. We want to encourage you to use it. And so actually today we have 30 copies printed and ready uh, to hand out to people. And they're on the back table. They're on the resource table. We want to encourage you to take one. But don't take one just to thumb through it. Take one and be intentional to use it. To either go through this material with someone else who's already gone through it, if you haven't already, or if you've gone through this, to pick one up, go through chapter one because it's new, and then take someone else through it. I want to encourage you to do that. Provides a great structure for you to engage in good discipleship. So, may we all be participators, not just participators, but engaged in the Great Commission, making and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ. And this, hopefully this series has just provided some practical, helpful principles to encourage you to do that. One more note. Last week I talked about being a bringer, following the disciple, or following the example of the disciple Andrew. I did say that right, right? Okay. Tongue-tied. We have a new card. This is an invite card to Summit Bible Church. Simple enough. You know, our previous invite cards didn't work because, well, they provided the heritage address and we aren't there yet. We're hoping to get there. But this simple invite card has our church name on it. And on the back, it has one of those fancy QR codes that, again, if you just scan with your smartphone, it will lead the individual to our website where they can find all our church information. So we have a lot of these printed. They're on the back table. I encourage you to grab a couple and be intentional about inviting someone to church, inviting someone to our community to hear the gospel. And so here's another resource for you to engage in the Great Commission. 
Again, we want to provide resources for you to actually do these things that have been taught and preached. Next week, I look forward to celebrating and looking at what God's Word says about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, I pray that this week you will be blessed, filled, and that you will look forward to celebrating that together on Sunday. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I am so thankful for uh, this church. I'm thankful for men and women who love you. I'm thankful for their uh, just exemplary love for one another. God, our care for one another as family members in Christ. God, I pray that you'd help us, uh, stimulate us, give us a zeal to reach out to the community, to invite people to the church, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to disciple others, to disciple one another. God, I pray that we'd be zealous doers of the word and not just hearers, God. God, give us the power, the strength to do these things by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.